a sense that most of you just heard the text read to you and probably noticed that we are on an eight-year pace <laughs> with the book of Luke. Um, I promise I'm going to speed it up. Um, I just keep finding things that are significant we've got to keep stopping at. Um, but we'll get through it much quicker than eight years. But um, I trust you won't be frustrated by the process, but our time together will be rich for each of us. Important to handling this episode is we do kind of wind down this scene or this episode with Zechariah and Gabriel. We're winding it down this morning. And important to wind it down well is to have a sense of what Zechariah is hearing in Gabriel's speech to him. That will help us make sense of Gabriel's question about what Gabriel is saying. There's many things at work in this text. You know, as we've covered already before, that Zechariah is a priest. So you know that comes with his teaching ministry as a priest, he is well-versed in Holy Scripture. Zechariah, a man devoted to righteousness, obedience to the law, living a life by faith of gratitude in what Christ has done for him, of what he knows to be of Christ through the promises of the Old Testament. He is well-versed in Holy Scripture. What comes to bear in this moment, then, in the exchange between him and Gabriel is exactly that. Zechariah knows the book of Daniel. It's very likely that he has known the book of Daniel since he was a young boy. Certainly now well-versed in Holy Scripture as a priest within Israel, he knows the book of Daniel. Closer yet, if you're moving in the canon of the Old Testament, so you're moving this way towards this episode right here in the opening of the New Testament, you would go from what he knows to be true of Daniel and think of Zechariah's knowledge base in Malachi. Malachi is your last book of the Old Testament canon. Zechariah is well acquainted with it. Let me read for you. You don't need to turn there, but note in your mind. Malachi 4. These are the last words of the Old Testament. Since these words were spoken, remember, there's been roughly 400 years of history where God has not spoken again until this episode. The last words of the Old Testament read like this. Behold, now listen carefully, please listen carefully. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. With that in mind, if your text is laid open at Luke 1, look carefully at verse 16 and put yourself in the place of Zechariah. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient 
to the wisdom of the just. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, if you were Zechariah in that moment, again, ministerially offering sacrifice, prostrate before the altar, praying for the deliverance of Israel, and an angelic host appears and speaks to you about your offspring being empowered with the spirit that was upon Elijah. There would be in no way a missing of the information that Gabriel is really truly speaking. He is reiterating the last promise of the Old Testament and putting forward the first promise of the New Testament. The significance of this for Zechariah would indeed have been overwhelming. Zechariah is hearing Gabriel say to him at this moment, you are going to be a father. We covered that last week. That is incredible news to anyone who has become a father. That's incredible news. Certainly, as you know, the context of Elizabeth, how much more so is that truly incredible news? You will be a father. You're going to have a boy named John. But it's not just that that overwhelms Zechariah. It is the theology at work. Zechariah, a priest. Zechariah, knowledgeable of the Old Testament. Zechariah, knowing Malachi 4. Praying for Malachi 4. And Gabriel showing up and saying, it is here. Your son, John, will be the forerunner to the Messiah. Think about Zechariah again for a moment, standing in this place at the altar, having this angelic host appear before him, tell him that he will have a son, and that the son is spoken of in Malachi. This is where we left off. This is what we're praying for, and it is your son who it will be. And as if that's not enough, consider what Zechariah's mind is thinking even more. You mean, if my son is the forerunner, then that means that the Messiah is coming. That far outweighs the significance of having a son. It far outweighs for Zechariah the ability to process that alone. Yet even more, God's deliverer is coming. What we've waited for, what the entire Old Testament under the time of law and our fathers, of what we know, the sacrificial system, the temple, the prophetic ministry, the priestly ministry, the kings who have served for better and for worse, all that we have waited for, all the types are finding their antitype. The Messiah is coming. Now, in this, what would be, momentous announcement. You have the exchange in your mind. You see the priest, full of theology and knowledge, recognizing redemptive history and all that they have been waiting for, and an angelic being telling him, the time is now. 
the extraordinary. Couldn't we say that this vision is indeed extraordinary? And it is an incredible occasion. Brings with it a point of confrontation. For Zechariah. Yes, it's, it's tremendous, it's momentous, it's extraordinary, but it is also a point of confrontation. But we've seen this type of confrontation before throughout redemptive history. Let me join you to one more episode that parallels ours this morning in this point of confrontation. Consider Abraham and Sarah, you're familiar. You could go back to the account somewhere beginning in Genesis 16 and then follow it through through Genesis 20. And you know the episode very well. It parallels Elizabeth and Zechariah. There's Abraham and there's Sarah. Both are old in age. Sarah, you recall, is barren. And, like Elizabeth, advanced in years. But God promises to Sarah that your wife, or to Abraham, that your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, this wonderful announcement, are you kidding me? I'm going to be a father. You mean, no, I was going to have the blessing pass through another tent. No, it'll be through your tent. It'll be through your family. Your wife will have a son. You can imagine what Abraham is thinking as he's hearing it, as you think of Zechariah and what he is hearing. And in parallel, they both bring this point of confrontation. Sarah, if you remember, upon hearing the, the, the announcement, you remember she's kind of in the tent, behind the tent, and she's hearing the information out, and she's there, and she's hearing it, and she, like Zechariah, is overwhelmed. And as she manages her feelings of anxiety or fear or simply however you want to describe her feelings of being overwhelmed at what she is hearing. Remember, I'm advanced in years. I haven't had a child. You know the episode with Hagar. You know what's taking place. Being overwhelmed, she awkwardly laughs, the text says. Handles it pretty left-footedly. She's thinking of the possibility, overwhelmed with the calculation, her own calculus. I cannot. Doesn't, don't they know my condition? Don't you know the history of what's been going on here? Do you see my age? She awkwardly laughs at this tremendous and wonderful announcement. The Lord, then speaking with Abraham, hears. You recall the episode, right? He says, why did Sarah laugh? You know, to the reader, you're thinking, well, it's kind of obvious. It's, it's too extraordinary to receive. It, 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 look at, again, our rationalist tendencies or what we sanctify by calling common sense, I think. It's obvious why she giggled or whatever she did there at this tremendous announcement. It's not obvious to the Lord. Why did Sarah laugh and, and say, 
shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then he grounds that thought in the mind of Abraham and in the mind of Sarah with this ultimate rhetorical question. And it is this. He concludes, is anything too hard for the Lord? The point of confrontation. And with that rhetorical or ultimate rhetorical question that he piercingly looks at you, he asks piercingly Abraham, piercingly Sarah hears it, and also considers Zechariah in the moment of his own announcement, moving from age and barrenness to a child, not only a child, but the forerunner to the Messiah. Oh, who, oh, who, even if it is the forerunner to the Messiah, you get it, the Messiah is coming to redeem his people. And with this rhetorical question, Abraham, Sarah, Zechariah, and you this morning, your own faith is confronted. Let me ask you this as we launch into the text. Coming in here this morning, from varying providences throughout the week, a piling up of providence over time, nagging injuries, we call it, nagging doubts, nagging sins, worries, anxieties, etc. The text is confronting through Zechariah, the text is confronting you. And I do so by asking this question, where does your faith rest? Well, well, it rests in my DNA, or it rests in my age, or it rests in my... uh, my Why did Sarah laugh? I I don't get it. Why did she laugh? Shall I have a child at such an old age? Because of the old age. No, no, the the object of your faith is wrong. Um, I guess let me ask it another way. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the point of confrontation. So again, as I move forward, let me ask, where does your faith, the reader, the people of God, the listener, where does your faith this moment rest? Does it rest upon you? In thinking of the challenges that you're facing, does your faith rest upon you, your ability to do, to perform, or to work? Or, as the Lord says, I don't understand the challenge, I guess. Well, don't you see? Or, does your faith rest upon him who is able? That, that, that's the confrontation of the text. That, because surely you see it, the, the significance of the moment would flood the mind and heart of a priest like Zechariah. But the confrontation in the announcement is Zechariah, is anything too hard for?
before the Lord. You know him. You know his ways. You're acquainted with him through scripture. You know his delivering acts. You know your people came through the Red Sea unscathed. You know he fed you in the wilderness. You know Sarah and Abraham's story. You know she had Isaac. Is anything then too hard for the Lord? This is the point of confrontation for Zechariah as he hears this tremendous announcement. And it is the point of confrontation for each of us this morning. Maybe we're not giving way from barrenness unto childbearing in the moment. It doesn't matter. The episode speaks well beyond it to our multiple challenges we face. Very personalized to each and every one of us. But the fundamental question is the same. Is anything whether it's barrenness, whether it's finances, whether it's a reputation that needs to be repaired, whether it's a courageous step one needs to take in order to suffer some measure upon character, personal inner conflict with others, whether it's family within a marriage, outside of marriage, whether it so on and so forth it goes, is anything that you're facing too hard for the Lord? Where does your faith in this difficulty lie? This is the question in the text. Notice the under, with this underlying question in your mind about Abraham and, 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 and Sarah and now Gabriel and upon you, keep this question in your mind as we look at Zechariah's response to Gabriel. Look at verse 18. So with this tremendous announcement, now comes the interaction that we witness as we wind down the text between Zechariah and Gabriel, and keep the question in your mind. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Now, with that in mind, perhaps you've read this episode before, and you think, wow, what, what, what I'm struggling with is that he would ask this question seems reasonable. But what happens to him as a result of asking this question seems to be out of balance, seems like, what is really going on in this episode? Because it seems that as we will eventually, and within time, we'll get to the next portion in this chapter, I promise. And it does seem that if we were to put a contrast or, or, or a juxtaposition, we, we put them together and we compare and contrast Mary's interaction with Gabriel and, 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 and Zachariah's interaction with Gabriel, it seems that Gabriel really gets kind of really burned here. And it doesn't seem, and it's hard to grasp because we see Mary essentially asking the same question, but Gabriel here asks and gets seemingly punished. What is taking place here? There's an important distinction within the two responses that make it clear. Notice again the text very carefully of what Zechariah says. We have to, again, there's a distinction at work here that's important for our understanding. And Zechariah said in response, how shall I know this information? How shall I know? Now, important in this is to recognize that Zechariah is not asking, as is the case with Mary, how will all of this occur? That's a different question than how will I know this will occur at all? 
Now, granted, the human component in it, I'm not bagging on Zechariah. And it wouldn't be right for us either. We share with him in that same measure of, how will I know your promises are true? How can I lay hold of them in a way that it stabilizes my turbulence in life? How can I simply assent to these wonderful and precious promises? How can I know you're truly coming back? How shall I know? So, again, we recognize the humanity with Zechariah, but it doesn't justify it. It is still a doubt that Zechariah needs to repent of, and us as well. How, Gabriel, let me, let me ask you quite straightforwardly. How can I know what you're saying is going to occur? Again, what that says in the text regarding Zechariah's concern for knowing exposes that Zechariah is not doubting or wondering about the process. How Gabriel, how will it occur? We have some challenges in place here. We have some obstacles we're going to have to get over. But rather, Zechariah is doubting the integrity of the promise itself. This, across every page of Holy Scripture, seems to be various episodes and various responses of congregations and so forth and the people of God under the law and the Old Covenant all the way since the garden, to doubt the integrity of the promise of God seems to be a perennial struggle in the human heart. Think about it. That's what we faced in the garden with Adam and Eve. How do I know this is correct? How do we really know that God said? How do we, how do we really know to doubt the integrity Not the process by which God is at work in providence and creation, as we confessed this morning. How do the decrees of God get worked out in time? By creation and providence. Is providence mysterious? Indeed. So it isn't a trouble to question the process. How is God going to achieve His great and precious promises in my life? How will His plan unfold? By what time? Through what measures? What pathway ought I to follow? It isn't a sin to doubt or to wonder in and of itself, to wonder of process. Is this right? I'm not sure that it is. Maybe I should go this direction, so on and so forth. But rather, the doubt for Zechariah, which is wrong, and is wrong for each and every one of us, is to doubt the integrity of the promises themselves. That they're sure. That what he says is what he will do. What he has said, he has done. He has truly done. I want to consider this just for a smidge further. Because Zechariah's rationalism isn't alone. Again, it's a perennial struggle in the human heart. Look at the next response that he elaborates in verse 18. So already you see that he is fundamentally doubting the integrity because 
he, he, he's heard it, and, and, and again, understanding he's overwhelmed because he's knowing now that the Messiah is coming. They've been waiting on this for centuries. And so, so how will I know? How can I, how can I know this is true? But then look at how his rationalism immediately turns. The object of his faith, in other words, is wrongfully, his faith is wrongly placed. Notice his response, verse 18, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Do you see the common sense response to the extraordinary work of God? The, 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 the perennial issue in the human heart. You don't understand the response, Zechariah says, my wife, do you, do you see the situation we're facing? How can I know that what you're saying is true? You must not be aware of the challenge. If we were to take a poll in the room by raising of hands, please we're not, so don't. How many of us are facing whatever type of challenge And we seem at times to doubt that God seems to know the objects that are seemingly unmovable in the context. You don't understand. How do we say that? Certainly we don't say to him, you must not know. We say it with our own rationalism. It's just, I don't, we say it in loads of doubt. Zechariah does the same. You must not see the concrete, unmovable pieces here. There's obstacles to this word. My wife and I are too old. In other words, it's not really possible. How often our rationalism looks the same at the promises of God. In other words, the doubt that sends us anxiety, fear, shrinking back rather than going courageously forward because we think it's impossible. How do you know? Let me ask you, how do you know it's impossible? Well, because I I know the challenges. In other words, this is Gabriel's inference that he is supposed to draw from the words of Zechariah because Zechariah doesn't come straight out and say it just like we don't either. But he sees what's in the room. He's like, look, I'm old. She's old. We've had this barrenness for a very long time. I see, in other words, it's impossible. Okay, well, here's Gabriel's side of it. The inference that Gabriel is to draw from this word or redirection of faith, from its truest object unto the human capacity, faith's object is not human ability. But Zechariah turns it into such, and the inference that Gabriel draws out is this. Oh, Zechariah believes that God's purposes and plans are limited to and bound by human abilities. That's the inference. That's the good and necessary inference to be drawn out of the words of Zechariah. That's what Gabriel's hearing. Not... How will this occur? This is tremendous. This is wonderful. Wait till I go out and I bless the people with the ironic blessing when I leave this temple sanctuary. Wait until they hear it. Could you just 
fill in the, the details of how exactly. No, it's fundamentally different than that. That's Mary. What, what he's saying is, how will I know that this could be true? Don't you know the challenge? In other words, my faith is waning and I feel that, I guess I didn't maybe know this about myself, but I do feel that God's tremendous, precious promises are bound and limited by human ability to perform them. This is the point of confrontation for Zechariah. Maybe something Zechariah didn't seem was true of himself until this tremendous promise was unleashed upon him and he found his faith falling down instead of rejoicing. He found that faith's object is turning inward rather than outward. And Gabriel senses it clearly with him. Thinking of this text and faith's sure and steady object, I thought this week. And it kind of pushed me beyond the thought of doubt regarding God's ability to perform his promises of Scripture on a grand scale. Or or thinking like in terms of... I, I sense with us most often, and it might be revealing of me rather than you. So, you know, take it for what it's worth, I guess. We tend not doubt God's ability to perform things like economic stability. I I think we tend to think in concrete ways God is always going to care and provide. I don't know why it's easy to assent there. That, that he'll care for me. He'll provide something for me. And we kind of take that approach, I think, to many of life's difficulties. I don't know why. I sense that it's easier in the physical or external categories when we consider our life lived before the face of God that he'll care for our needs in these varying external and physical categories. It, I don't know for believers if it becomes a place that we rest in what we confess this morning, the great decrees of God. That, that, that he has a purpose and a plan for our lives, and we confess that his decrees are not after he consults with us, but they are after the counsel of his own most holy will. And he foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. And, and that brings a measure of comfort in external things, whether it be finances, relationships, where do I go from here? We do plan, and we, and we do pray, and we do seek, but I sense that there's a bit more of an ability to kind of detach on these external and physical categories. Where I find, again, maybe it's more revealing of me, um, but where I find that I think um, we tend to doubt and, and feel a bit more isolated, maybe troubled, is in the spiritual categories, the internal works the greater provisions. I think we far too often think like Zechariah in terms of spiritual doubting. 
let me give you a few that I think we are challenged by. That rationalism tends to, to, to cause our faith. And by rationalism, I mean, again, by a, a separation from theology, but simply thinking in terms of who we are and who we know ourselves to be and the challenges that we face, and then thinking of those categories distinct from what we know God says about those categories. We tend to not hear what God is saying about them, and we tend to think of those categories on our own. And by doing so, faith's surest object is redirected. That creates tremendous doubt. Let me, I just jotted down five of them. Five things that I think, like Zechariah, but for us in this spiritual manner, we tend to doubt God's ability to keep his precious promises. Again, I think internally. Doubt rises Number one, doubt arises that we possess full and complete pardon in Christ through faith by grace alone. I think we doubt that more often than we doubt that God will provide financially. I think it's mysterious somehow how they're disconnected in our minds. But I think we tend to be plagued more with doubt that we possess indeed full pardon in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, by grace, alone. It's the alones that get us. I thought of another one that I think tends to bring about this doubt of God's ability to keep his perfect and precious promises. We tend to doubt his ongoing presence in our lives. Rather, feeling more spiritually isolated or or spiritually detached from the sin that we allow in our lives creates this sense of shame, creates this sense of isolation. And I think that faith seems to wane, doubting that God is there, that God's presence is there, and that we can turn in repentance and yet again be refreshed and empowered In his presence, I think we tend to doubt his ongoing presence spiritually. Again, this isn't a doubt about how he maintains his presence with us. I think we doubt the integrity that his presence remains with us. Third, for me, that I kind of jotted down, a, a, a sense of doubt spiritually about God keeping his promises is that we tend to doubt that, our he- that he hears us when we pray. Or, say it simpler, we doubt that our prayers are heard. All of them work together. A doubt of full pardon, a doubt of grace, a doubt that I don't need to work to gain his favor and grace. I then doubt also his presence in my life. I doubt he's keeping that covenantally with me. And this then gives me great doubt as I pray that he even hears. But economics, he'll care for me. A future, he has one for me. Spiritually, internally, 
I wonder if he hears me. Four, it seems to be that we tend to doubt, given life's circumstances in Babylon, that we are his pilgrim people and that this world is not our home. I think we tend to forget that or rise in great joy because of it. Maybe we just need to work in a bit more. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I, I, I might doubt his ability to keep his precious promises, his ability to do, because I consider, does he know who I really am? I may doubt that I am his pilgrim child, and I am journeying toward his presence evermore in a world that is to come. Five, I I think fifth and final thought where, again, not the external kind of detached categories, but where doubt seems to reside deep within the heart is that we may doubt that he is indeed able to aid and empower us in the fight against besetting sin that he is able to aid and empower us in the fight against besetting sin. If I was again, and I'm not, taking a poll by raise of hands, how many of us feel the weight of ongoing sin? That brings us back to number one and the vicious cycle we experience. Doubting his ability to keep and to do. Doubting his ability to perform his wondrous deeds. Doubting that he is intended to. Purify me. Make me holy. Make me more like his son. Through the process of word and sacrament. The process of his ongoing empowering presence. That he has committed to me more than I am committed to me. And that he will make me more like him daily by his grace and enabling strength. I think we tend to doubt, will he put food on my table? Probably. Will he give you strength and has he given you strength to fight against besetting sin in your life? Not sure. I say all of that to say we're in a great spot with the book of Luke. Because as we peer through the heart and mind and the response of Zechariah, we find out that Luke put Zechariah's narrative in there for our five challenges. Or maybe we've got like a thousand challenges. Let's be real. That's why Zechariah was put in here. Luke even told us, didn't he? He wrote about the episode of Zechariah's uncertainty in order that you might have certainty. You see, he didn't polish Zechariah. He put Zechariah right where Zechariah was. He was uncertain, wasn't he? And I wrote all of this, including the uncertainties, so that as you read them, you might have true faith response and have certainty. 
regarding the truth and promises of God and his ability to perform. You see, biblical faith goes beyond anxiety, fear, and doubt. Please hear as we summarize just this last moment and we wind down our time together this morning. Please hear as we peer into the life of Zechariah and as we think of it as we are like Zechariah, tend toward the rational, tend towards the common, struggle in the spiritual. Biblical faith goes beyond the rational. It goes beyond the anxiety. It goes beyond fear that we all have and we all face at different levels and different and certain degrees. Biblical faith ascends above and beyond doubt. Not in mystical ways, but it does so by finding rest in the surety of the Word of God. How will I know that I have full pardon? Thus saith the Lord that you have full pardon. Where does He give such great and precious promises? In His most excellent Word. Biblical faith isn't some mystical journey that overcomes on its own and belongs to the best steward Biblical faith rises above rationalism, anxiety, fear, and doubt by finding rest in the surety of God's word. Faith says, yes, God is true in all that he claims. God is able to do all that he intends to perform. The final moment for us this morning is the unfortunate response from Zechariah bring something of a disciplinary confirmation. Let me just conclude our time by walking through the text. As you notice, for I am an old man, his rationalism that gives way. I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. Notice how he responds. The, the response of 19 comes from the question of how shall I know? Um, Gabriel, again, he infers what Zechariah means by being old. I read between the lines. I know what you mean. God is not able because of human ability. I know what you're saying by asking me, how will you know the truthfulness of what I've declared? So notice his response is in kind. The angel answered him first, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Do you see? How was I supposed to know that this is true? I'm Gabriel. What do you mean? What's the significance of the word, I am Gabriel? That, that's the first foot out the door that Zachariah is on the wrong side of the issue. I'm Gabriel. Again, drawing back to the introduction, Zechariah keenly knew the book of Daniel. The last human being that Gabriel had spoken to, Daniel. And they had a conversation in chapter 8 and chapter 9, if you recall regarding the coming of the Messiah, God's prince, Zechariah. You know what I told Daniel. You know the promises that I made. They're here. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Then he says, and I was sent here to speak to you this brilliant news, to bring you this 
gospel news. I was standing in the presence of God, serving Him as is my commission, and I was sent to speak to you, Zechariah, to bring you, Zechariah, this gospel, this good news. And you say to me, how will you know? You want something more confirming than my word? You want something more confirming than the word of God delivered to you? How can I be sure? How can I know? I need something more confirming. Like, how about this? You will not be able to speak or to hear until this time is fulfilled. Here's your sign of confirmation. How will you know? You'll know by deafness now. It is a deed, a disciplinary measure. Look at verse 19 and 20. And the angel answered, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Again, Zechariah is now overwhelmed even more with the flooding of the significance of who Gabriel is. He knows Daniel. This is actual. This is true. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this gospel, this good news of your son, of the Messiah. That I was sent by God to tell you what is to occur in the salvation of his people, beginning with your family. Verse 20, and behold, you need more, here's more. You will be silent and unable to speak. There's your sign, Gabriel, or Zechariah. And you will be unable to speak until the day that these things have taken place. Why? Because you have not believed my words. Not Gabriel's alone. But it's united to verse 19. He stands in the presence of God and was sent to announce the very words of God. And you, Zechariah, did not believe the word. Gabriel rendered Zechariah for his doubt. Not about how. Indeed, it is a tremendous announcement. But... How can I know it's true? It's fundamentally different. Gabriel rendered Zechariah unable to hear and unable to speak until the time of its fulfillment. We know that I, I might push you a little bit. Maybe you're looking in the text. I'll just briefly note the question of how do you know that he cannot speak either or, or cannot hear either? Um, Because verse 20 seems to indicate that he's only unable to speak. Well, quickly, if you look at verse 62 um, of the same chapter, you'll see the truth of this, um, where where John is born. And verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Do you see? So they're they're, they're gesturing Um, because he can't hear it either. This discipline upon Zechariah serves God's purposes. How? To discipline and redirect Zechariah's faith away from himself and unto him who is able. Zechariah, God, Redeemer, God is not bound by human weakness. His precious promises to perform are not waiting for your abilities to really sharpen and you to really become somebody. 
His decrees are His to perform. And they begin as being after the counsel, not of your will, but of His own. And if He is for ordaining and He is able to bring to pass all that He has decreed. Let me conclude by asking this final question. Through this episode with Zechariah, let me ask you this. Where does your faith this morning rest? You note for Zechariah, well, you didn't believe the content of my words. We can push further. You did not believe God's word. You rationalized, Zechariah. You turned inward at the challenge, Zechariah. Indeed, you turned inward at this wonderful announcement, Zechariah. You're weak, Zechariah. Look outward, Zechariah. Look upward, Zechariah. Don't place your faith, Zechariah. Believer this morning, do not place your faith upon yourself, your ability to perform, to work, or to do, but place your faith upon God through his word who is able to do all that he has promised. He loves you. He has atoned for you. He will keep you. He will cleanse you. He will return for you. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we resoundingly say no 